welcome to another episode of Media Literate, a collaborative podcast that is really winding down at this point. Um, oh, oh, that's a bummer. I think this is our last regular episode um, before our grand finale. Wow. I know. I'm, um, I would like to have more feelings, but honestly, I, I feel like completing a master's degree <laughs> barely. <laughs> let's be clear uh has really it's sapped a lot of the energy <laughs> uh, you know what yeah so what let's finish strong let's yeah yeah so so we're uh we're gonna have a great main wait episode. I'm Kim I'm Laura nice fuck yeah uh <laughs> finish really strong? we to not like get to the end of this show and maybe never once do that right so uh, whatever. Um, we're going to have a great main episode where Sebastian's going to be on. Um, oh, fuck yeah. I love uh, conversations with Sebastian. <clears throat> they're always great. Uh, for our listeners, one hint on the topic, the name's Wurzreiner. Sebastian Wurzreiner. <laughs> hey! Hey! That was really cute. Thank you. Um, is the title of the episode also going to have a hint <laughs> at the topic? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe let's see. Um, anyway, so it's going to be awesome. We're going to be talking about um, indigenous authorship and in the James Bond fr- franchise. Uh, it's an unexpected combination, but uh, it's wonderful and it's Sebastian. So, it's you know, it's going to be amazing. But first, mm. for the final time, oh, we have to do our last... I- I cannot believe we're ending on this movie. I know. For, I definitely our final cannon fodder. I feel like we we like switched up the schedule. I sh- we should have watched something better than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kim. Uh, what did you watch for our final our final cannon fodder segment? <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I feel like we can bring back the air horns. Yeah, um, everyone's favorite. Oh yeah, you guys love it, right? Call in. Um, <laughs> I watched a movie that is really surprisingly in the canon. Um, Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, but I did do my job. So don't get mad at me when I say this week for Cannon Fodder, I watched Children of Men with Clive Owen. So Mm -hmm. Children of Men uh, is a movie that I've heard the title and I, I only barely know what it's about because you told me the premise i think which is okay. sci-fi dystopia but like yeah i literally never thought about it before which is kind of how like all of clive owen and his oeuvre works for me is the it clive just, owen canon? It's the clive owen canon so children of men is i i similarly didn't really know that much about it um besides the conceit of the dystopia which is that there's no more babies people stopped being born mm. a while ago um and it actually opens, I didn't know this, but it opens on like the death of the youngest person who they call baby Diego, even though he's like 18 and a half years old. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty rough entry into celebrity for that guy. <laughs> uh, and he's murdered now. So there you go. Yeah. But yeah, it is a very typical dystopia, very, a lot of gray tones. Mm. Um, I thought Sean Bean was in it all the mm. way up through halfway through the movie. I was waiting for Sean Bean to show up. But no, okay, so is it good? Yes. Does it deserve to be in the canon? I don't know. It feels like one of the modern um, takes on 
like like at some point the criterion collection was like we need to spice this up we need people to still give a shit about what we think Um, and when you think spice you think clive owen (laughs) i would say he's one of the spicier brits he's a brunette (laughs) he has a jawline (laughs) i gotta stop i'm gonna like (laughs) i was gonna anywhere i was gonna go from there was gonna be bad okay look so yeah there's the no one's being born everyone's super depressed about it everything's only Mm. happening in gray tones there's like a few different terrorist cells and like bad things are happening and people are exploding stuff and it's like is it the government is it this terrorist group who's it gonna be blah 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 everyone's freaking the fuck out seems like the end of the world but things are still kind of like slowly grinding to a halt you Mm. know Mm -hmm. um and at this point Clive Owen is is it Owens who cares Clive Owen take that Clive uh is visited by his ex-wife Julianne Moore uh who is the head of a terrorist cell I guess Uh, and she sure is not like other girls (laughs) okay I'm gonna stop trying to do the summary and basically just get to the point which is like yeah there's a baby and he has to protect it or whatever and there's the girl is it a children is it also a child of a woman yeah so here's the really fucking annoying thing about this movie Laura is that <laughs> really early on there's a lot of expositional news clips there's a lot um it opens with an expositional news clip so and they just continue on throughout it's not the worst expositional news clip but somewhere in here really early on in the movie they just drop the tidbit that like yes infertility is a problem infertility infertility yeah 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 and then they're like women's inability to conceive so it's like specifically women are infertile you had one job women one (laughs) job so mad about this like they didn't actually have to specify on whose end the fertility was (laughs) in that was bad but you know like like right why 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 are we assuming they're actually really hard to fuck with infertility is actually much 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 more likely on uh on the like male like external scrotum genitalia side of things Mm. because it's on the outside of your body as opposed to eggs that are on the inside so like just (laughs) this is your weekly biology lesson listeners Mm -hmm. i'm it's much more common for infertility to come from a penis than it is from a uterus Mm. just so you know so the fact that this movie is just like and it's the ladies fault (laughs) like it made me so mad (laughs) There's always, I, I feel like we just simply don't have time to get into the fantasy of male reproduction in this cannon fodder segment, but there it's is. one of the most fascinating parts of science fiction, like, of the past several decades, just the, like, but what if men didn't need women to, to carry on the population? <laughs> men are so gay. Oh <laughs> Anyways, um, it is in fact a woman, though, it, it like, Clive Owens, like he's he's very involved in the birthing process, both literally when she's giving birth and also like, you know, he shepherds this baby into the world because mm-hmm. he's got to take care of her or whatever. Um, it is one of it has one of the more annoying dystopian sci-fi tropes, which is that like it sounds like every single uh, script that you've ever been given you don't have to be in film school. People will give you scripts. They'll be like, hey, I have this idea for a movie. Like, do you want to read my screenplay? And it's they're usually bad and that's fine and so this movie is doing this thing where 
it's like we have to explain all the bads like it's doing a lot of world building via dialogue mm-hmm, mm-hmm, except mm-hmm. Clive Owens is every man he is your typical every man he's really really disillusioned everyone's sad that baby baby Diego died except for him <laughs> you know he, he's always trying to oh, smoke a cigarette this is a cute um running bit that they have that he's always trying to smoke a cigarette and like he never can like someone's always getting in the way of him lighting a cigarette and that's kind of cute but it really is just like oh man you really care about this thing that's just like truly someone brings up a terrorist organization in conversation and they could just like gloss over it and Clive Owens has to be like you mean the terrorist organization that has this as its mission statement? That's foolish. <laughs> Women are never going to be able to reproduce again. This is just the end of the world. And it's just like, okay, yes, these are the details of the dystopia. Quite, I understand. Can we please move on? Um, yeah, so it's, it's. I think Cannon Fodder, I eventually stopped trying to watch actually good movies and mm. I started trying to watch movies that um, shitty white men keep telling me to watch. Yeah. Um, which is also usually there's some significant overlap with the canon. So maybe in fact, this is, um, as our final episode, it's right. We started with reservoir dogs. We've come full circle. I mean, let's be real. Part of this exercise has not been to watch and appreciate film. It has been to be able to trash on the movies that we always wanted to trash on, but never could trash on. I mean, we we did anyways, but now we have have higher ground. ground. Yeah. So like I can now say that you are, if you like Reservoir Dogs, a bad person. I could only Accurate. kind of think that before, but I definitively know it for sure. So <laughs> the, uh, uh, the final statement of this podcast is fuck Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I guess we're not we're 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 not going to go so far as to say fuck Alfonso Cuaron because yeah, no, you he's, know, he's he's okay. He's but good. you know, like kind of fuck Children of Men. It's a fine movie. It's once again one of those movies where it's like, I understand why teenage boys like this. Mm-hmm. And I myself enjoy it an amount. I feel like with kind of gritty, angsty dystopias, like what do you what's it what's it trying to say? You know? Like so this is actually kind of unfortunate. Like I could have watched this. I think it's more important to watch canon movies with like the absolute lowest common denominator audience member blank mind mm-hmm. and I've been watching it in this sort of apocalyptic place in mm-hmm. my own brain and I've been doing some research uh <laughs> into <laughs> reproductive futurity. oh that's really, yeah. yeah so I I watched it in the context of reading Lee Edelman's No Future which is this really um complicated about on this podcast at all oh at- wow pretty major but whatever wow this is an anti-gay podcast <laughs> yeah, um no lee edelman is a really great theorist who we should have talked about at some point during this um i mean he's a. anyways um <laughs> let's get into it right now <laughs> <laughs> a lot of critiques to be had with no future but basically his stance in that is like fuck the kids like who gives and a shit right. yeah yeah, yeah I, I basically criticizing the underlying conservatism of politics uh, of all politics, because there's this sort of notion that like, well, you have to do it for the children and no one can say no to that basically. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a very, very steeped in reproductive futurity. It's so like without, it really highlights the way that 
heterosexuals cannot fathom life worth living outside of like making a baby mm-hmm. so they one thing with this movie that like maybe this will be my final thought on it i hope dear god <laughs> is that there are so many parents in this movie without kids there's like it's stacked with parents running around without kids clive owen and julianne moore's baby dies um <laughs> sorry and then they break up and like there's a, a midwife character who's super weird and like has kind of Buddhist vibes, but like white lady with dreadlocks, Buddhist vibes. Oh, everyone's favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and like she can't be a midwife anymore. So she sort of lost her vocation. And Michael Caine is playing this like old hippie stoner in it, Excellent. Uh, who's taking care of his wife who was tortured by the government and she's kind of catatonic, right? So it's like all these people who were in these loving relationships who were nurturing future right in in their relationships and when the apocalypse happens like this lady can't make like deliver babies anymore clive owen and julianne moore's kid gets killed by some sort of virus that happens and they have to split up because they can't stand to be around each other anymore like there's so much love in this movie that has nowhere to go and i think that's its central argument right that like without children what do we do with all this love and then like everything becomes so bleak and it's just like i don't know fucking <laughs> love each other like yeah there's this there's all these terrorist cells there's so <laughs> many different terrorist organizations in this movie it's so silly and they honestly seem to have a pretty solid like infrastructure for mutual aid going on and they spend their time being like we're gonna get this baby and we're gonna use it to like foment an uprising and it's like i don't know you guys have safe houses across the british countryside you got farms mm. grow food support right, each just other live your best life don't yeah 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 like you you're around there's still a range of ages like take care of each other jesus you don't need to make a baby with your ovaries to fucking like be a nice person so that's mm. My stance on children of men. Excellent. <laughs> I mean, watch it, guys. It's fine. You can watch Clive Owen be really. Oh, you know what? One good thing. Mm. He he's doing a really annoying everyman. I'm disillusioned and gruff and whatever in a sci-fi movie performance. But when Julianne Moore gets shot in the neck and dies, spoiler, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> I want to. I love when people say spoilers after they give the spoiler. I do that too. It's just like. Well, <laughs> Yeah. Look, this isn't a movie about women. <laughs> it's a movie about infertility and the, the there's the, one the... specified gender in the title and it's men. <laughs> so, you know, she's not going to stick around, but he has this really great moment where he's been like, I don't care about anything the whole time. He's drunk most of the time. He's always trying to smoke a cigarette and Julianne Moore dies and he goes off, he like takes a little walk in the woods away from everyone else who's crying. And he's just like stone faced, like, I am so broken inside. I'm a man, blah. And then he leans on a tree and breaks down and like really pathetically ugly cries. And it's so nice. It's like, holy shit, this man is having feelings for like two seconds. And then someone's like, hey, Clive Owens, come on, we got to go. And he like stands up and like kind of like, brushes off his his pants and he's like okay and then hey he walks back to the car but there's like two seconds where he's an actual person instead of like Aww. a man's idealized version of grief which oh. is just totally shut down and, and yeah. like oh, i'm so then gruff. cry like mcduff yeah. it all goes back to mcduff hell yeah
I don't know who that is, but you know, it sounds like a British name. Which Macbeth, I'm sorry, I need to interject here before we go into the next thing. Macbeth kills Macduff's whole family. And when he hears the news, he starts to cry. And the guy he's with is like, stop fucking crying, be a man. And he's like, I also shall feel it as a man. And it's, 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 yes. Oh, wow. I've never, uh, Macbeth is one of them Shakespeare's that I've never engaged with. It's amazing. It's my favorite. It's the shortest. Oh, so that's, that's you know what? The, highest Fuck the American education system. Why <laughs> couldn't we start with that one? Yeah. Jesus. And speaking of toxic masculinity and Shakespeare, which is British, James Bond. And welcome back. We are here now with Sebastian, whom you all know and love. And hi, Sebastian. <laughs> hi. Um, So you've been on this show a few times, and if you've listened to Sebastian's other episodes, you can probably guess vaguely what the topic is going to be. Sebastian, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so I, (laughs) it's Indigenous cinema once again. Oh my Uh, God, what? (laughs) I, I, the moment Laura said that, I was thinking back, I was like, I don't know if anyone's like been quite as like dogged and persistent as I have been (laughs) in terms of the topics. So um, today, Part of what like I thought would be interesting about bringing this topic to the table is that I realized it would probably be my last episode on the show, and it kind of ties together some strands that we've discussed in mm-hmm. the three mm-hmm. previous episodes I've done. Um, so it's kind of bringing in first, fourth hybrid cinema, which is mm-hmm. something I introduced as a concept in the first episode I was on. And then it's talking about um, Die Another Day, which is a James Bond film directed by Lita Mahore, um, who directed once for warriors, which was the topic of the second episode I really did with you all. And then part of the way in which I'm thinking about die another day as an example of first fourth hybrid cinema, um, is in terms of some of its environmental politics, um, and its critique of anthropocentric thinking potentially. And so that definitely has connections with the discussion we had about blood quantum, uh, in the fall. So that's broadly speaking. Did we actually get to talk about blood quantum? In my memory, we it's did. just something that we we never got to. <laughs> we were just like, man, three generations of hotties. If only we could talk about it on the show. I think we did. I think that we we also wanted to have a movie night where we watch it together, which we haven't done yet, but I want to do. Gosh darn. Um, just want to reiterate how impressive and like amazing Sebastian's whole scholarship is. Like the fact that you are actually able to tie these together thematically is mm-hmm. Just so goddamn cool. The um, consistency is impressive. I yeah. mean, we all talk about different things every episode because I don't know about you, Laura. I have no fucking idea what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> oh, wait, no, you have the Jetsons. Never mind. I, I guess I am the the premier Jetson scholar in this current Zoom meeting. Um, <laughs> so, Sebastian, first, fourth cinema. Would you recap just real quick uh, what yeah. that is for our listeners? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And also, thank you all. That was um, very kind. Um, as far as first, fourth cinema, so... Super quick recap um, from <laughs> that episode. First cinema, like Hollywood film slash just mm-hmm. in general commercial filmmaking. Second cinema, mm-hmm. art films, um, avant-garde work, mm-hmm. avant-garde work, etc. Third cinema, revolutionary films, generally anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist. Those three come from an essay by Fernando Solanas and Octavio Gattino. We don't have time to get into it right now. Look it up later if you're interested. Uh, fourth cinema then is an intervention proposed by Barry Barclay, who's a Maori filmmaker from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it's basically the idea that first, second, and third cinema 
are, as he views it, invader cinemas. They're all um, generally made on stolen indigenous land. And so therefore, fourth cinema is sort of um, an extension of this framework and also an opposition to it in some ways. Um, and it refers to indigenous filmmaking practices more broadly. And so my proposition with first, fourth hybrid cinema um, so initially I proposed it in relation to Thor Ragnarok, which is what I discussed in that early episode, mm-hmm. um, which is on the one hand, very much for cinema. It's, you know, this major Hollywood production. It's part of what is right now, I'm pretty sure, the most lucrative franchise that Hollywood has, but it's also directed by Taika Waititi, who's a Maori filmmaker and has a lot of themes that are um, sort of reflective of anti-colonial indigenous, indigenous politics, but also mm-hmm. in its production practices reflects a lot of the principles that were really important to Barry Barclay. Um, and so sort of going beyond Thor Ragnarok, um, first, fourth hybrid cinema sort of generally encompasses films like that. There aren't that many, but films by indigenous directors that nonetheless would probably be in, other, in any other context described as first cinema, kind of plain and mm-hmm. simple. And so Diana Another Day is very much an example of that in the sense that um, I feel like the James Bond franchise isn't quite what it once was in terms of like its immense cultural prominence, but is still, you know, a major franchise um, and is, mm-hmm. is extremely first cinema in every other regard. Yeah, this is actually interesting to pull in as well, because Die Another Day is, uh, I think we can call a, a low point for the Bond franchise. <laughs> it's the one that's always referenced as the low point. So yeah. how do we how do we <laughs> discuss it as as like a first fourth hybrid yeah it's funny i uh i did a just for when i was researching like i did a little informal survey um just to see like what the general consensus of it was i knew it wasn't great so i like looked up like on the internet the top 20 like rankings of the bond films i could find and then like tabulated where exactly die another day falls and like this 25 official ones and it's i think the number i came up with was like the average was 23 so super low excellent yeah Yeah. i mean Uh, Again, wow, scholarship. Like, I would just be like, it's bad, you guys. <laughs> to be fair to James Bond, nothing, like, is there any franchise that was doing well in the early 2000s? That's Shrek. Like, yeah, Shrek. <laughs> Shrek, Shrek was absolutely was a revelation. crashing it. Right. It was just not a great movie. So, okay, listen. The other half of this is that, if I'm not mistaken, Sebastian, you watched every single James Bond movie for this project. Wait, hold on. Is all of them, just so you could talk about the one? Yes, okay, I guess I should provide like a tiny bit of context for why I did that, (laughs) which is that uh, Die Another Day is both the the 20th film in the franchise and also it was released as the 40th anniversary. So they first started Mm. in 1962, it was released in 2002. And so it's more than the others like very self-referential of the franchise's history and Mm. so in this weird way it's both very reverential of the franchise's history but also in some specific moments trying to subvert it um Mm -hmm. and so I I probably didn't need to watch all of them but I I wanted to both because like it you know it's entertaining as problematic as the films are like it's Mm -hmm. it was a fascinating deep dive but also to sort of immerse myself in the context in which the film was emerging. Um, yes, I have watched all of them. And I guess like to, to circle back very quickly to Kim's point about like, it's a bad film. What do we do with that? <laughs> part of like, part of my, and honestly realization, cause I kind of knew this going in, but it very much crystallized mm. when watching all of them is that like, because the Bond films are so problematic that like how I 
rate like are any of them good are any of them bad like are any of them solvable? what do i make of them is just so askew so for me honestly like at this point die another day is one of my personal favorites because it's so campy and absurd and weird and yeah dumb in a lot of places that it's like this is incredibly entertaining i'm not saying it's a good movie but it's incredibly mm. entertaining um yeah yeah so now when i tell people that i haven't seen that many james bond movies i think i've seen casino royale and um skyfall and that's it and usually people usually men are are surprised to hear that and you're i think maybe the only man in the entire world whose opinion on james bond i would like to hear so would you please give us so your happy top- <laughs> so happy to have brought back the only man whose opinion we care about would you be so kind as to give us some top takeaways from having watched all the james bond movies you know like just sort of your your hottest takes we got we got die another day is a top film top what else what else we got yeah okay firstly thank you again extremely sweet um (laughs) other hot takes this franchise i i feel like people don't appreciate how weird the bond films are mm. in the sense because like octopussy's part, garden that's the thing like that's the thing. i think people yeah. like forget for example there is a film named octopussy in there and like that is like and it is <laughs> and it is wild there's an army of thing one and thing twos that just like run around this film it's so strange like <laughs> it so it's one of those things like i think part of it is that, like part of what's fascinating about it um and that kind of connects us on the t- conversation about dying another day is that you can truly map so many of the kind of cultural politics of the moment Mm. sort of across the decades of that because I feel like there's a way in which with Bond films now um and I feel like this is very much reflected in the sort of like bros who sort of glorify them and what they tend to focus on is like there's a handful of them that they really like Mm. and that are really emblematic of what they find interesting about the franchise and they tend to be surprise surprise like the ones that are all dark and gritty and like extreme and, and all this other sort of stuff for like where Bond shows this, I don't know, emotional damage or whatever, which I don't know why you would care about, but some people do. Um, but like <laughs> what gets lost in that conversation is just like, again, how incredibly strange the franchise is. And also like the very weird ways in which it tries to like engage with the Bond franchise's bizarre pop culture uh, position and this sort of mm. tying it back to Dino of the day a large part of this is the fact that like the bond franchise is at its core in its conception like emphatically pro-colonial which was why it makes mm. it such a weird I, I guess like thing to bring into the conversation with first fourth hybrid cinema because you would think that would sort of inherently curtail any fourth cinema reading of a film like Dino another day um mm-hmm. so i don't know that's again i can i have other like super random hot takes if, if, if you want them right now um, can i get like two yeah i i, I want to hear some. <laughs> just a um, random sampling <laughs> i'm trying to like i'm literally right now as we're talking i'm pulling up i have a document on my computer which is just bond film notes i'm like looking at the rankings right now to see oh i know a really good one i can i can go with i think pierce brosnan is an overrated james bond i don't think he ever seems really um like he's like he always seems really uncomfortable playing the character and like mm. the character itself is deeply uncomfortable problematic horrible misogynist <laughs> being is the thing but like if i'm gonna give credit to anyone at least i'll give credit to some of the actors for like seeming like they know what the assignment is and i just feel <laughs> pierce brosnan always feels just like I, I he like the only honestly part of why i kind of enjoy time of the day is it's the only film where he seems comfortable because the f- whole film is so chaotic that like he can't not 
fit into the chaos as a thing, but in the more competently made entries of his tenure, he looks just completely excuse me, completely out of place. It's so down on his level. Yeah. 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 Which is, and that's my big hot take because like Pierce Brosnan is again, I think amongst a lot of like the Rowier fans, deeply mm. beloved. And I know certainly like for my parents' generation um, is the James Bond. Like if mm. I were to ask my mom, like who to you is the definitive image of James Bond? It's like, well, it's Pierce Brosnan, obviously. So I just, mm. I found that fascinating watching his films and just being like, this man does not look comfortable in this role at all right now. <laughs> it's really uh, funny because he used to be on this show that I watched on Hulu when I was obsessed with Pierce Brosnan uh, is a short window of my pubescence. Um, <laughs> but I have more <laughs> questions, but go on. <laughs> it's called Remington Steel, and it's a oh, Sebastian, have you seen it? It's ridiculous. No, but there's an amazing connection there because basically. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you at all. I just very yeah, Jesus. I thought you were the one man whose opinion we cared about, and now you're interrupting me. Sorry, sorry. Proceed, Kim. <laughs> well, I feel bad about it now. But anyways, it, there's a private detective agency called Remington Steel, and the Remington Steel is like the best private detective and whatever. Uh, and it's a woman, and she keeps her identity secret, and so she no one's ever seen Remington Steele until one day there's a man impersonating Remington Steele, and it's Pierce Brosnan, and everybody really likes him, so he and the woman team up. He's completely hopeless, but she's really smart, and he is has a penis and nice hair. So it's a great, like, he does James Bond actually very Really, well. what else do you need to be a detective than a penis and nice hair? <laughs> this is going to pair really well with the discussion about the wire from the previous episode that you all did. Like that's Dominic gonna... West does have good hair. He does. Lance have Reddick good hair. is bald, but I don't know what he would look like if he grew it out. Anyway, sorry. Um, was, this is not a hot take, but this is, was just my second. Uh, this is a little follow up I can do um, before hmm. we, I guess, move on to the more direct discussion about Diana Day. Funny thing about Remington Steele is that that initially inhibited Pierce Brosnan from playing James Bond because they <gasps> can't, they canceled the show. And this is the weird stuff. It makes sense. It wasn't great. Yeah, it was like, they apparently they canceled the show and then the producers were like, oh, Pierce Brosnan would be a great James Bond. Let's hire him. And then like at the last minute in the contract before Pierce Brosnan was free from it, whatever studio was producing Remington Steel was like, oh, we actually are going to do another season of it. And apparently to quote the producer of James Bond, Remington Steel will not be James Bond. And so like they couldn't make anything work out because he thought Remington Steel was too low grade or something to be associated with the bond franchise and so which is hilarious so, i know Excellent. exactly exactly so like pierce brosnan had to wait another six years before he could play him and timothy dalton did it in the meantime again the weirdest things you learn when you spend <sighs> way too much time with this franchise but i truly just... don't even know who timothy dalton is I, Timothy I Dalton played uh, the one of the he was in Hot Fuzz and that's the main thing I know him from. My reference was, is he <laughs> Professor Slughorn? No, that's a different guy who was in Hot Fuzz, I think. My reference point was going to be if you've seen Toy Story 3, he voices the porcupine Mr. Pricklepants and I just I, <laughs> I love that detail. <laughs> Man, the wide reach of the British Empire. My yeah, goodness. Yeah. Speaking of, ha. yeah, what are the like yes. the most imperial things about this franchise? Other than that, it's like a British man who kind of goes around to countries and beats people up there. Yeah. So one of the most common readings I've found amongst academics, at least of the franchise is that like it very much emerges at this point in like the late 40s, 50s and, and 60s, where 
Britain is very la- rapidly sort of losing its empire in at least like mm. the more material sense of being able to properly claim certain places as colonies. Um, mm. And so like, for example, the first Bond book is published in 53. The first movie is 1962. So it's like right smack dab in the middle of this transitional phase of the British empire sort of no longer being what it once was. And so a very common reading of the Bond films and the Bond books to a certain extent as well is that they're, I think the way that um, the scholar Cynthia Barron described it is kind of great. She, she calls them nostalgic bandages for England's wounded pride uh, in a post-colonial era, which Burn. Like, a, <laughs> but like it's, it's, ouch. but it's really like, once you start seeing the franchise from that perspective, it like a lot of what's going on sort of beneath the surface of its more convoluted plots kind of makes sense from that perspective in the sense that it's functionally all about Bond as a sort of embodiment of British imperialism, mm. getting to go wherever he wants in the world and getting to do whatever he wants without any sort of repercussions, without anyone telling that he can't and sort of always being hailed as a hero for by his country for whatever he does in those contexts. And like, it should also be noted that this is deeply intertwined with the film's gender politics, which are shock of all shocks, incredibly misogynist in the sense that like, <laughs> One of the ways in which like Bond consistently enacts like this imperial ethos is by going to wherever he wants and not just doing whatever he wants, but also doing whoever he wants in the sense of like, hey. <laughs> like <laughs> I love that like you're like it's so misogynist and then we're just, <laughs> we're, just like, we're just the frat boys of the feedback gallery like ah, get it in. <laughs> Uh, but boy. it's also wow. bad it's, it's bad it's very it bad uh yeah I mean, again i don't know quite how to respond to the the a other than just going to unison i guess but yeah there is very much like there are a lot of readings of bond as again having sex with a ton of women as and often like women who are not white and who are you know citizens of former british colonies or just former colonies of european empires as again, like a way of Bond sort of enacting British imperialism. And so it's just like super, it's also like worth noting that Ian Fleming, the author of the original Bond franchise and its creator was also himself just an incredibly racist and misogynist human being and like served in the British military and was just very conservative in his politics. And so like all of that is just infused in every aspect of the Bond franchise. And like what kind of, one of the things that is sort of interesting about a film like Die Another Day and some of the latter era Bond films is that like they're kind of at this point where the Cold War is no more well hey also rhymes A's for sex and rhymes yeah (laughs) I mean at the again at the time like the Cold War was kind of seen to be no more and so there's this way in which like part of the project of the early Bond novels and films also is the idea that like asserting British imperialism is also a way of inserting sort of capitalist values in opposition to the the, the reach of the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. And so mm. when all of that sort of starts to disappear or become no more, or you also get pushback from scholars who point out like, hey, this is very racist and misogynist, what the hell? Like starting in the 90s and into the 2000s, you can see the franchise grappling with that history and the way in which it can never, unless it like just, ditches James Bond as a character which it can't do because he's the title character like there's no way to to kind of disentangle yourself from that but like there's a way in which you know in more implicit and explicit ways throughout a lot of like the more recent films that the franchise has tried to grapple with that often not especially successfully but like it is an interesting aspect and definitely 
prominently appears in Die Another Day. Mm. Yeah, so I um, I know very little about Die Another Day other than the things as we've already discussed uh, on on this on this episode, directed by Lee Tamahori, um, stars Pierce Brosnan. And before we started recording, Kim was like, "Is that the one where he parasails?" So I am very excited to hear about uh, about this this film. <laughs> can I can I bring up one quick uh, straight up contextual question before we get into the absolute absurdity of the plot? Yeah, <laughs> please. Um, so I know that the whole point is that James James Bond can at least traditionally has only ever been played by British actors, and the directors are also supposed to be British. And Lee Tamahori is from New Zealand. And how how do they square that circle? I mean, there is the whole empire thing we were talking about. Is that kind of, they're like, well, it's the Commonwealth. How do they do that? Yeah, that's, I think that's generally how it was approached um, in the sense that like, as you said, like all the actors and all the directors have typically been a part of the Commonwealth. I think if I'm not mistaken, the first time that has ever been broken was with the most recent film because um, the director was American. But like in every other case, the actors are always like, again, part of the Commonwealth from Australia mm-hmm. or uh, Bros- Pierce Brosnan uh, is, is, I believe he's Irish. And so, or uh, New What's Zealand and stuff like that. Exactly. John so, Connery. Yes. So that's always been sort of the approach. It's like, well, it's an expansive understanding of like, you know, like where we're drawing from, but it's all fundamentally kind of the quote unquote British Commonwealth. And I think that was very much the approach with Tamahori and what tended to get like the arc, like the archival evidence that exists of sort of commentary uh, around the film's release and like the pre-production stuff like that is quickly degrading on the internet. But what I can find, like what tended to get erased in the conversation around the film's production a lot was the fact that Tamahori was the first time someone who was not white had directed one of these films. And that the mm. fact that he was a Maori filmmaker and that that like adds an additional dimension to the whole f- franchise's sort of imperial politics very much got erased and sort of subsumed in the fact that it's like, well, he's from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so that, again, that's part of the Commonwealth. And so that is acceptable, therefore. And so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I hope that kind of answers that question in terms of how the film was was framed when it was being produced, as I understand it. That does answer it. It is also odd to think of like Pierce Brosnan or um, Sean Connery as from the Commonwealth because as like a partial Jamaican, the only way that I, I'm like the Commonwealth is like the brown places that Britain has claimed. Um, so very interesting. But anyways, I you have, you've satisfied my curiosity. Thank you. What the fuck is up with this movie? Yeah, so I'm going to try like to do the... The most bare bones speed run plot summary here that will hopefully capture some of the absurdity <laughs> of it because it is a really weird film. So, like, very quickly, open up. Bond is doing a mission in North Korea. Doesn't really matter what. He comes into conflict with a North Korean uh, colonel named Colonel Moon. He gets captured. It appears that Colonel Moon has died within the sort of fiasco. Um, through a prisoner I love exchange. the mini James Bond film at the start of the James Bond film. Exactly. It's always like, you get a little bonus. And this one's super weird because, again, it ends not on a triumphant note, but, like, it ends with him being captured. And, like, one of the weirdest aspects of the film, this is not too related to what we're talking about, but I just think it's funny, is that, like, the opening credits, which is also, like, a huge convention of the franchise, mm-hmm. is showing him being tortured in North Korea while, like, Madonna's 
terrible pop song plays over it and it is wait is it sexy torture because madonna does sexy torture i feel like i i wouldn't really describe it as that and it's also like it is very uh, it is a very like club song if that makes sense for madonna and so the juxtaposition between like this like very like Hmm. electro i I don't know like i i'm not a music person so i'm not not sure if i'm describing it correctly but it's a very it's very electronic heavy madonna contrasted with like Pierce Brosnan being tortured and it's just it's such a strange juxtaposition um during the opening credits so cool already off to a great start yeah great start so we get through the opening credits uh through a prisoner exchange that doesn't really matter Bond gets released and is basically and he's also like no longer allowed to be 007 because they're worried he's like hemorrhaged information to North Korea or something so he's like cool well I was betrayed uh in North Korea because that's the only way, way they captured me um, so I'm going to go find whoever like betrayed me. And that's the whole thing along the way. This is what maybe come back to this later, but like he stops by in Hong Kong, not super, uh, relevant to the plot at all, but like worth noting that Hong Kong had very recently been handed back to China. Like the handover was only a few years ago. And so like, that is some of the context mm-hmm. that the film's dealing with. He then goes to Cuba, um, doesn't, that's not, a, well, he meets up with Halle Berry in Cuba, but not a ton else happens there. Um, but he learns that like there is a sci- a new sci-fi machine that can allow you to like change the color of one's skin essentially. And so like the villains have been who are from North Korea have been like basically like turning themselves into they look they look like boy band members out the other end of this. Like they look very <laughs> like Backstreet Boys or whatever out the other side of this machine process to like disguise themselves. So that's that's the weird thing that happens. He then goes to Iceland because he's like, in the midst of all this, he's like tracking down diamonds, who he, which he believes are conflict diamonds um, and from Africa. And so <laughs> this leads him to Iceland. It's super weird. Again, I, I apologize that this like is not making much sense, but he ends up in Iceland and ends up confronting this, like what appears to be this British entrepreneur um, named Gustav Graves, who, like, could not be more British because I believe he's played by Maggie Smith's son. So, like, just to give you a sense of, like, what the what oh. the dynamic is, is there. Is he royalty, then? Is that... Is she in a line of people? What? I don't know. She's a dame. I mean, presumably if enough people die, she would be, <laughs> like, she'd get there. But I don't know. Maybe. I... I how the... I think whole, that like... makes him incredibly privileged within the acting world, but, yes. you know. <laughs> 100%. So he comes into conflict with this entrepreneur named Gustav Graves, again, played by Maggie Smith's son. Uh, it turns out that Gustav Graves, well, he's all like, oh, look, I have this giant satellite in the sky encrusted with diamonds that totally aren't conflict diamonds. And I'm going to use this satellite to basically create a second sun that will like solve all sorts of ecological problems in the world. Like it will bring light to like places where it's cold and they can grow crops and it will deal with all sorts of concerns and stuff like that. And it turns out that uh, is he he wait hold up he's like what if we melt the polar ice caps is that his it's it's really it's really weird because it's extremely within the film it's very much framed as like this is a response to environmental concerns that like somehow creating a second sun will help address some aspect of this but it seems really backward because you would think that creating a second sun would make things worse not better it's all okay because it turns out that like, oh, that's okay. not at all the objective here. It turns out that this is actually Colonel Moon who survived 
he like went through the weird, like gene, I think gene therapy is what they call it. So he went through that. So he's been disguised as Gustav Graves all along. The timeline for this movie makes no sense, by the way. So he's like, hey, I turns out I am going to use this giant satellite. It turns out the satellite doesn't just provide like heat and warmth, but it can also like aim a concentrated beam of sunlight onto the earth. And which is where we get the scene of mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan. Like he aimed, he's trying to chase after Pierce Brosnan and he aims a concentrated beam of sunlight at like a glacier in Iceland. And this is where we get the iconic scene of Pierce Brosnan like parasailing over the exploding glacier. <laughs> Kim's face oh, right now is, is, is just getting... <laughs> so anyways, I'm honestly, parasailing. I wasn't listening to most of this plot summary because I went and watched the uh, Madonna Die Another Day music video on YouTube. It's bad. It's extremely bad. It's really bad. So anyways, Highly recommend you pause and go find it, listeners. So anyways, and then so come back. To very quickly conclude all this, it turns out that Graves, who again is Colonel Moon, is like, I am going to use this like incredible weapon I have to invade South Korea and unite the Koreas once again. And like, I, but I'm going to do it through like this incredibly violent forceful mean of basically like using sunlight to like scorch the country essentially. And so then the film wraps up with James Bond and Halle Berry having to stop him and it's it's a mess they have sex on a beach also right yes they have sex in a a buddhist temple which did not go over well with the south korean censors i'll tell you that much that was it is (laughs) that that is a yeah we we maybe get to that in a second because that's a whole other kettle of fish so really really weird fish kettles like really 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 bizarre (laughs) film so that's the plot summary basically um so yes, the most memorable part is Pierce Brosnan surfing over a glacier that is exploding due to a giant beam of sunlight. Sorry. He saves the South Koreans. That's the that's the plot of this one. He's like, no, I got to go in and save you from the other ethnics. Basically, which again, we'll, we can get to in a second in terms of like what's going on there. with yeah. the Yeah, it's very strange. This one did not go over well in either the North North Korea or South Korea. Um, you would be <laughs> shocked to hear. Here's my question. Yeah. Why? Um, but also, um, how? But more specifically, I'm just saying words until I can come up with fucking something. Yeah, please uh, just, uh, just help us out here, Sebastian. Yeah, no, no, what I do can, we do with this text? Yeah, no, I can, tr- I can try to start there. So, like, Part of like what I think is interesting about it, if you frame it as first fourth hybrid cinema, which like at a at a very least a purely definitional level it is, is the fact that like there is in fact a lot of within the film, particularly the first half, but throughout, a lot of commentary and critique of the Bond franchise's sort of innate imperialism. Like it shows up all over the place in the Mm -hmm. opening Korea sequence and in the Hong Kong sequence, for instance, in the sense Mm. that like the film is not sugarcoating the fact that like, again, like, like it it basically points to the fact that Bond showing up in North Korea to do this undercover mission is part of a very long line of sort of Western imperial intervention and sort of overreach in this area. Um, And like, it continually points to this uh, about like, like look like this is the west doing this again and then in hong kong which again like in terms of the plot like like i don't i don't understand why he has to go to hong kong like there's no plot narrative reason for him to do that (laughs) but thematically it's kind of interesting because he shows up there and um the chinese i i think they're the chinese secret service um are basically like hey you're not allowed to be here anymore like 
Hong Kong is no longer, you know, part of the British Empire. It is no longer under your control. Get the hell out of here, basically. And like, it's again very, and it doesn't frame them as in the wrong in this context, or it doesn't frame mm -hmm. like it, it's not siding against them, or it's not sort of being resentful about that. It's like no, like Bond is it once again sort of overstepping here um, mm -hmm. in being the sort of avatar of British imperialism. And then the other part that's so there's there's all that throughout the film. And then the other part that I, I find interesting and where I think it connects to some sort of uh, of the film's environmental politics is the way in which like if you frame it from one or like if you if you look at it from one particular perspective, the whole satellite, which I should say is named the Icarus Project, like that's just for the sake of clarity going on. Ah, nice. um, that's the name of the satellite in the film. And if you look at that whole aspect of the film, there's very much a way in which one could argue it's kind of a, it can be read as a critique of an anthropocentric way of thinking about environmental concerns and both how they are produced and then how they can be addressed. Um, because for, if, if you just look at like Gustav Graves initial pitch for what the Icarus satellite is, which is this idea of like, oh, it's a second sun, it will solve all these problems and stuff like that. It very much aligns with this idea that um, a scholar that we, I think all three of us have very mixed opinions on, but TJ Demos has... Um, <laughs> Maybe maybe mix is being too generous. Um, I think it's definitely being too generous, but it is one of those like <laughs> the worst person you know has an excellent point uh, moments because in his book <laughs> against against the Anthropocene, he has this whole point about like in the face of things like climate change and other environmental concerns, a very common response, uh, particularly kind of within capitalism, is to be like, well, we can use all of these resources that we have as humans to geoengineer the world to like fix whatever the problem is that like we can like change weather patterns or like, again, do all sorts of weird geoengineering stuff to address things like climate change. And his point is that like, no, that's terrible. Like part of the problem is humans already overreaching in terms of like what role they think they have in relation to their environment. Mm -hmm. um, and also that geoengineering is inevitably just another opportunity for capitalism to step in and to continue to profit in the face of stuff like this. And so that's very much like that is extremely at play in this aspect of the subplot in the sense that like it is presenting itself as a solution, but like it is, it is a terrible solution to the thing that it thinks it's trying to solve. And it is also presumably just a further opportunity for Gustav Grave to just make more money. But of course, that's also like mm -hmm. kind of the cover story within the film. And what I think is even more interesting is that like when you get to what the actual plot is, it's about, it's basically about this idea that like this character has this incredibly potent environmental weapon um, that he can use kind of at will against anything. And there's a joke in the film about that, like when he's, again, sort of like directing the beam of sunlight at uh, the glacier in Iceland, there's a very explicit joke where he turns to one of the companions and says, uh, global warming is such a tragic thing or something along those lines, basically. And that's <laughs> the only, and again, I might be missing something because there's 25 of them, but that's the only time I can think of where like the Bond films have, directly even referenced climate change as like a thing that exists and is a concern in the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way in which it's kind of, it's very much implicating this weapon and all of that, and also further connecting it to the fact that like, he's using it for very specifically sort of colonial reasons. Like his whole objective is to again, invade uh, and conquer essentially. And like his belief is that he, and like he, like also like kind of mentions that like he has further plans for this he's like you know once we get south korea like we can like go from there and like it, i don't think he goes full world domination explicitly but it's very much like south korea is the start and then we will like conquer the rest of the world essentially and so 
oh sorry and so i just like oh, I guess, no, finish to tie it up i was just going to say that like that connects to what a lot of kind of connecting it back to indigenous cinema it connects to what a lot of indigenous scholars have talked about in terms of environmental concerns and things like climate change scholars like um zoe todd and max Lebron, this idea that like environmental catastrophes and climate change specifically is very much uh, kind of an inevitable outcome of the colonial project and this sort of anthropocentric way of relating to land, the belief that humans are separate from land and nature and the environment and other than human beings and kind of have the right to, to control or enact our will on that. So if you look at it from that perspective, there's a lot of, again, interesting stuff going on there which is then further complicated by the rest of the film, which I imagine we can get into in just a second. That yeah. reminds me a lot of, uh, Laura, your, your crazy Russian guys, the cosmologists. No, oh, the cosmists. Yeah. My boys. Who is the one who is like, <laughs> he wanted everybody to be able to walk around naked. So his plan was like, if you take all of the square footage of like warm land, along the equator than every human on earth which like not anymore bitch but every human on earth could have a little plot of their own land that's like in the perfect climate and i think he was just like tired of being in russia but his plan was like we just take over all the middle bit with all the brown people yeah and then supposedly uh... everybody gets a piece this is yeah this is konstantin tielkovsky who i can't pretend to understand what he was on about but it was very odd uh it was it was a very um confusing bit of something called that they called logic but uh cannot possibly be considered as such so but it's interesting that it's like that idea of changing the environment or like Mm -hmm. harnessing nature or conquering nature was which was the cosmists thing yeah um, so that they could then go to space also but yeah yeah the 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 kind of like combination of like geoengineering plus like eugenics right like really really Mm -hmm. fitting together in this in this one um very very odd uh fringe ideology in russia in like the 19th century that has so many uh like overlaps to other ways that we look at the environment um Mm -hmm. as a problem supposedly so this is a critique of imperialism but isn't Graves actually a North Korean dude in in disguise? Yeah, so this is, again, this is where, like, the whole <laughs> film gets really weird and self-contradictory. So on the one hand, like, he is very much so, and, like, there's this weird angle of, like, again, sorry, this is where the film gets contradictory. I'm trying to, like, parse it all out right now. So on the one hand, there's a, this aspect, which I've, I've kind of been trying to talk about, of, like, his project is kind of imperialism and colonialism to one extent insofar as he wants to use this thing to conquer and like initially specifically South Korea but again going much beyond that once he's done there and that is very again that is you know that is a form of of imperialism um kind of in a way but and there's also a way in which just to tie some of the two threads I was talking about before together just to kind of wrap that part of it up there's something interesting about the fact that um the film very like does a really interesting thing of connecting Gustav Graves to James Bond and suggest and like it's very explicit about the fact that Colonel Moon models his performance of Gustav Graves after James Bond and Ooh. is very and which is made in a sort of metatextual sense really interesting the fact that Toby Stevens voices James Bond 
in the official sort of radio plays that I think BBC does and has actually played him for more like official appearances than anyone else. And so, and Toby Stevens is the actor playing Gustav Graves. So there's this connection of the idea that like, again, kind of tying back to the film's earlier critique of Bond is this agent of Western imperialism that Colonel Moon in his whole sort of imperial project is very specifically evoking and taking inspiration from Bond as like informing what he's trying to do here and how he's utilizing this environmental weapon. Of course, then like what get like the other component of this and where this gets really weird and contradictory and problematic is the fact that like for this whole plot to shake out in the way it needs to as a James Bond film, it ultimately has to end with Bond once again sort of being this imperial agent who hops into North Korea and South Korea kind of willy-nilly does what he wants to stop Gustav Graves slash Colonel Moon and save the day. And part, again, a huge part of why the film is so controversial in South Korea and North Korea is the fact that like it functionally again kind of presents them as the playground for the US and the UK as imperial agents basically and so again there's this weird contradiction where like there is on this one hand like a surprisingly again particularly compared to the rest of the Bond franchise like a surprisingly robust critique of the Bond franchise's ties to imperialism and also how in the specific case of the Icarus project that sort of thinking connects with environmental catastrophe but it is still a Bond film and it cannot help but ultimately be about Bond as the Imperial agent getting to do whatever he wants and saving the day and sort of, you know, rah-rah, like yay Britannia and stuff like that. So yeah, that's very much at play there. And yeah. Yeah. So uh, to bring this back to Lee Tamahori, um, how do we understand it as like a potentially a first, fourth hybrid? Like what, what happened? Like what is, have you looked at kind of what he's, what his intentions with it were or yeah so part of the problem and part of what I've been running into and like where I've been trying to kind of expand or reconceptualize the notion of first fourth hybrid cinema in some ways because part of the problem is that like there is just not that I can find a ton of sort of documented material like with Tomahori doing interviews or talking about what he was going what was going on in this film as I guess as a very brief history here um because I feel like we kind of we, I, I don't know if we fully established who Tomahori is and how he relates to all this. Um, Tomahori is, again, the director of Once for Warriors, which we talked about a few episodes ago. He's a Maori filmmaker who, after making Once for Warriors, was courted by Hollywood because Once for Warriors is kind of the first Maori-directed film in New Zealand that really got major international attention. So Hollywood was like, hey, this guy, like, we should maybe do some stuff for us. And um, as I talked about, uh, I believe with Kim in the prep for this episode, there's a really interesting and problematic aspect of that where what they saw in Once for Warriors was of a kind of quote unquote violent film that would make him ideal for mm-hmm. suiting, for ideally suited for directing action films rather than like everything else going on in that film in terms of its political mm-hmm. critique and like the fact that it's not a story that glorifies violence at all. It is very much about yeah. like mm-hmm. the horrors of domestic abuse. And so it's a really weird take, but it was very much like, hey, that's the part we've glommed on to as opposed to everything else. And so as if you look at his career in Hollywood, it's this very up and down career. Um, and he, I believe in interviews more recently described it as not being a particularly happy time in his life. This kind of up and down career of him making, never getting to quite make the films he wanted to and consistently being assigned to make kind of big budget action films like Die Another Day. He also did like the sequel to Triple X, the, the Vin Diesel franchise. So there's that out there if anyone's interested. And then eventually in 2016 came back and directed um, a film called Mahana, which is regarded as kind of like a spiritual successor to Once Were Warriors. Um, 
So that's sort of the trajectory there. And because there's not a whole lot of him talking about like, this is what compelled me to do the film, um, other than like the most bare bones basic stuff you get from you know publicity interviews basically. So because there's not a ton of sort of more in-depth stuff in contrast to like White Taika Waititi talking about his involvement with Thor Ragnarok or the way in which he brought in other indigenous collaborators and stuff like that. Part of the way in which I've sort of trying to expanding this framework has shifted my thinking is that like in moments like this, it almost feels to me like first, fourth hybrid cinema has to become an active reading strategy that resists the potential for indigenous erasure that is very much at play with a film like Die Another Day um, in the sense that it, would be very easy and has been very easy for most James Bond's fans and scholars to ignore Tomahori's role in the film and to ignore his background and his influence on it and his own political commitments. And his political commitments are relatively evident both in Mal in, uh, sorry, not uh, in, in What's Warriors and in general, the way in which he's discussed kind of uh, Maori politics and Maori history. Um, and so again, there's a way in which Part of what I'm trying to, I want to argue with Die Another Day is that, like, first one has to embrace the fact that it is an inherently contradictory text, that it is in mm. a lot of ways a text that is at war itself, but that through embracing that one also has to sort of bring out um, the potential sort of anti-colonial subtext within there um, as an actively resistant reading strategy that uh, rejects indigenous erasure, which is a huge part of, is a huge sort of, again, aspect of the colonial project. Um, mm -hmm. So we can kind of get into more specifics in a little bit if you want, but that is part of how I'm starting to think about the film and how the, so the politics and the ethics of engaging with it in some ways. I feel like we, we tend, when we have these big franchises, to kind of look at them through this very like assimilationist lens like if you're making a bond movie it's a bond movie and it's it's a bond movie first and it's like like the the director's movie second and that's one of the things that makes uh like thor ragnarok a good case study for this kind of first fourth cinema thing because like it is we have this impulse to think of it as a marvel movie first and a ytd movie second and you're kind of troubling that and giving us like mm -hmm. well actually it like the individual person making it is troubling this like monolithic uh cultural umbrella that it we think that it falls under mm -hmm. that we assume it to fall under yeah and one of the things that i've been grappling with a lot with this and much more so with thor ragnarok because again there's just a lot more documented around it and like it's also, it's not that the Marvel franchise isn't in a lot of ways inherently imperial, but it's a lot less like, like the imperialism is the text of the Bond franchise in a way that is so unavoidable. And so one mm -hmm. of the things I've been grappling with in relation to what you're talking about in terms of the mark that the director leaves is like, how does one engage with this and refuse indigenous erasure without sort of being essentialist in terms of like who directed the film and what that means and stuff like that. And that's- right. A complicated conversation that I also think like in some ways one has to accept the accept the inherent ambiguities and tensions there but one of the things I've um actually credit to my partner for bringing this to my attention and sort of for encouraging me to to sort of bring this into my work around this film is there's a really excellent article that we'll link in the description I hope by um the Anishinaabe and uh, Haudenosaunee scholar uh, Vanessa Watts it that's about this notion of an indigenous place thought and it's sort of her argument that like within certain contexts within indigenous cultures and philosophies like a form as she sees it a form of essentialism is necessary insofar as that like her argument is essentially that within 
indigenous cultures and worldview, thought, human thought is not independent of the land and place from which that thought emerges, that it is an extension of that, that like the sort of Euro-Western way of understanding things is that sort of human thoughts kind of exist and float above above all that, above all that in a lot of ways. And again, this argument that she's coming from based on her own background um, and sort of experiences with other indigenous communities is that like we have to understand people and their thoughts and their actions as deeply rooted in the land and place from which those actions and those thoughts emerge um, and how that is incredibly important uh, to indigenous philosophies. And so part of bringing that into conversation with Dying of the Day and refusing indigenous erasure is kind of, again, accepting and emphasizing the fact that like the film has an, and that has a clear and undeniable connection to an indigenous place thought that is rooted within Aotearoa, New Zealand. And like the, like Tamahori's filmmaking career must be understood to some extent as an extension of that land and its, and its circumstances in some ways. And so even if that results in a film that is again, highly contradictory um, and is again, kind of at war at itself in a lot of ways that like part of the project of first, fourth hybrid cinema is problematizing as you described it, the kind of assimilatory understanding of these franchises and insisting on viewing them um, as kind of fractured or having these potential threads um, that sort of disturb a hegemonic interpretation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's something that I really uh, connect to as far as like critiques that I've seen and even critiques I've received in like some of my journalistic work in my undergrad of like work doesn't have to be good right it doesn't have mm. to be a good thing or a moral thing or a politically like upstanding thing for it to be made by a black woman or a mixed race woman or a New Zealand like Maori filmmaker right like and to completely allow the, you know, relative quality of the work or the context out of which it emerges in this, like, especially with Die Another Day, incredibly imperialist project, to let that consume the identity of the person who is putting in the labor of it. I think that's really important to, to push back against because that's part of the notion of first cinema as as its own entity right as commercial cinema or hollywood cinema is already in some sense like erasing the labor of the director but also every other person who's worked on that film mm -hmm. and erasing that labor is something that we can very easily extend and i think is a knee-jerk reaction to extend to erasing the identity of the filmmaker because you know Sometimes people get it wrong. Sometimes people make a bad project, but that cannot become mutually exclusive with your personhood. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, I, I think it's a, like a phenomenal point and connects with like, again, some of the ways in which I've been trying to grapple with the film because um, like one of the things that comes up when I sort of address the notion of first, fourth hybrid cinema to like not not you all or anyone else in our cohort necessarily because I feel like everyone at this point sort of knows what I'm talking about but like when I talk about it with scholars who aren't familiar with like where I'm coming from necessarily the knee-jerk reaction is very much to be like well is what you're trying to do basically like 
salvage these films in some ways or be like, oh no, actually like this thing that you thought is bad or problematic is good actually in like, in terms of like its quality per se. And that mm-hmm. is, is, is or even its politics. Exactly. And that like is never and has never been my project or its goal, I think, but rather like this idea that regardless of the quality of Die Another Day or its many contradictions, that like there is a necessity, there's a, a political and moral imperative, there's a necessity to refusing indigenous erasure when engaging with it. And that refusal itself troubles the text and its and the context surrounding it. Um, because like, I don't know if we've talked about this a ton necessarily um, in my previous three episodes, but like erasure is a huge concept in indigenous studies in the way that like the settler colonial nations like the US, Canada, Aotearoa, New Zealand, Australia, et cetera, like all of these nations and their projects rely on this idea that like either indigenous people never existed or they are no more. And so like their sort of claim to this land and their claim to exist can no longer trouble our right to exist as like a sovereign nation basically. And so like, this is something that uh, Mm -hmm. like the Mohawk scholar um, Audra Simpson talks a lot about and a bunch of other people in terms of like what it means to refuse that erasure and to sort of refuse that framing of things. And so, to me, at least that's always kind of been like what, or increasingly also realizing with this film, like that's what the first, fourth hybrid cinema as a theoretical framework sort of allows us um, to sort of view or to kind of open up within these texts. Um, so I, yeah, I think I thought that maybe connects to some of what you were talking about and is just, again, a very much how I've been thinking about what this framework means and can do going forward. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsey, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, Julia Rose Camus, and Julia Elizabeth Evans. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Cheel, and our logo was created by Julia. <laughs>